More first-time moms and new expecting families are finding comfort in giving birth to their babies at home. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there were approximately 51,642 home births in 2021, which was an increase of 13% from 2020. When the number stood at 45,646. These statistics follow a 19% increase in the amount of home births in 2019, at which point the number of women who were choosing to have babies at home stood at approximately 38,506. For non-Hispanic white women, the number of home births increased by 10% from about 1.9% of all births in 2020 to approximately 2.1% in 2021. Dr. Nathan Riley is a board-certified OBGYN and fellow of ACOG who left the medical industrial complex due to his disillusionment with the standard of care within the maternity care model. Dr. Riley loves what he does because it allows him to see the most intimate parts of bringing life into the world and helping to connect the patients and clients he works with to the joys of bringing life into the world and hopefully strengthening relationships. Dr. Riley is on a mission to honor midwifery for the art which it is. Dr. Riley views birth as a sacred process something he endured himself when he and his wife welcomed their second child into the world. Dr. Riley says it's equally as important for fathers to be emotionally invested in the birthing process, to draw themselves closer to their wives and their newfound newborns. And Dr. Riley was gracious enough to grace me with his presence this week to talk about home birth, his own personal and professional journey in medicine, and why his current work is for him his life's calling. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation.
take a moment to welcome you to the program, and I'm super excited to learn how to help women and, and uh, fathers through the birthing process today, Doctor. Great to be with you, and thank you for a few minutes this afternoon. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Doctor, I know that you are a board-certified OBGYN, and you focus on really uh, the, the art of the home birth and really uh, getting it, it into the nitty-gritty when it comes to that sort of uh, uh, medicine and helping women really embrace uh, the, the fact that they're choosing home birth. So I'm, I'm fascinated to begin our conversation by asking you about about the important work that you do, what makes you so fabulous, and why you're so passionate about the work you do as well. Yeah, um, you know, <clears throat> I suppose, you know, as as many kids who do well in school early on in life, you, you start looking around for a possible career path, and medicine seemed to be like a pretty hard a, a hard, uh, you know, course forward, and, and it appealed to me because I could you know, run my mind through the science and the math and some physics and chemistry. And, and at the end of the day, you know, at the end of that whole process, hopefully be able to help people. Um, I saw my first birth in medical school and I was pretty captivated because it was something that I, I didn't feel like I would ever fully understand. There was something really magical about it. So I pursued a specialty, which is called obstetrics and gynecology, eventually got board certified, also did hospice and, and palliative care work. Um, and got my my fellowship training there. So I've got two board specialties. And uh, while I was in the training, though, for the for birth and, and gynecology care, which is really sort of the OBGYNs are really kind of seen there, our dominion is really women's health. I wasn't as interested in surgery. I wasn't as interested in gynecology, although I do a lot of gynecology. I was actually more interested in the birth piece, but in the hospital system, it seemed like we were doing a lot of intervening and it wasn't leading to a lot of happy people having birth, having babies in the hospital. So while I was there, I ended up going to a couple of home births and I was like, wow, this is the magic that I remember from that first birth as a medical student. It like was there again. It, it seemed mysterious and mystical and and there was way more to it than, I, than what I was seeing as in the hospital, which seemed to be treating it like a disease process. So uh, after all was said and done, I decided if I'm going to do birth, I'm not going to do it in the hospital. I'm going to not be doing 24-hour calls three times a week. I'm not going to be seeing 20 people in the clinic. I just can't. I can't do what I like to do, which is to really get to know people, Let's sit with them and learn their story, You know, hear their greatest fears, their greatest joys and accomplishments, and try to put that into a part of a care plan. And home birth gave me the opportunity to do that. So when I left the system, I haven't looked back. It's actually been really, really nice. And And when I say that I support home birth, it's not even just me going to births. The, the traditional practice of midwifery, I think, is really where the world could head, at least our country could head, in order to improve maternity outcomes and neonatal outcomes. And um, and so I do quite a bit of collaborating with midwives around the country. I'm licensed about 25 states in order to be able to support as many midwives as I possibly can so that they can honor uh, home birth for their clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Doctor, I'm curious just to ask your opinion on on the increased popularity of home birth, because mm. more and more people are choosing that as an option these days. So tell me about the increased popularity and why you think that is today. 
Well, I think for years now, we've been at war with nature and the hospital system has advertised safety from, you know, bad things happening, right? And of course, if you were, you know, run over by a train or somebody shot you or stabbed you in the head or something, yeah, you you would want to go to the hospital because there's life-saving surgeries and whatnot that can be done. But this illusion of safety hasn't necessarily played out for pregnancy, for maternity care. When women give birth in hospitals, they oftentimes don't feel very good about it. Maybe somebody spoke to them in a weird way, or they were touched, or somebody shoved their hand in their vagina without getting full consent. There's just a lot of pieces of that, of those stories that started coming my way. And I realized it's not that people are having home births because they don't want what the hospital pr presumably provides, which is safety, uh, emergency techniques like surgeries, pharmaceuticals that can save your life. They're willing to accept that that might be important, but for 85% plus of women, it's not a, it's not necessary that you're going to need those interventions. And so as we start intervening in childbirth, we create problems that we then have to go in and fix. And I think a lot of women have started realizing, oh, wow, do we really need to be in a hospital or am I just fine at home with an experienced midwife? And if something does go wrong, can I just be transported to the hospital? This uh, has been the trend for many years now, maybe several decades, especially in the in the United States. But COVID really did a number on on women's sort of understanding and perceptions of what could be possible in their birth. When you're pregnant in the you know before COVID, you would be going into your office, you know your OB/GYN or your midwife in the clinical setting and getting a visit every two to four weeks. But during COVID, a lot of women weren't going in at all for many, many months in pregnancy. They'd be having telehealth visits that look just like this. And we weren't seeing a bunch of women and babies dying. So people started questioning, why do we have to go in every four weeks? Like, what are we actually doing here? So one little silver lining for a lot of people, a lot of families was, oh, maybe it's not necessary that we have an OBGYN visit every four weeks. Maybe somebody could come to our home. Since we're in isolation anyways, maybe a midwife will come to our home. And so it actually was an opportunity for a lot of women to kind of not just seek out that support, but really feel into what it might be like to have a home birth. And my wife and I had a baby in the hospital right before COVID, February of 2020, actually. And then we had another baby, but we had our second baby at home during COVID. And it was probably the most extraordinarily beautiful experience of my life, for sure. And I know it was very healing for her because you don't have all the bright lights. You don't have all the distractions. People are coming into your home and taking off their shoes as opposed to kind of demanding that you live on their terms, which is what OBGYNs and many hospital practitioners expect. So it really puts the power back into the hands of the woman giving birth, her family, um, and, and trying to get out of the way uh, and providing service in, in order to support her, as opposed to forcing women in the hospital to kind of comply with whatever the, the routine way of giving birth is. So I think there's a, there's, there's a whole bunch of elements there uh, to your to to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. And uh, doctor, I'm, I'm fascinated to also ask you about uh, reproductive rights and uh, women. I I don't have to tell you when you uh, turn on the news; it's one of the most hot button issues that are uh, consuming the headlines today for a right. good good reason that a woman's right to choose is dominating the headlines this day. So from a medical and personal perspective, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the state of reproductive rights in America and 
where you're most concerned and most hopeful for the future of those rights as well. Well, I think that my, my views on reproductive rights um, are as applicable to pregnancy and childbirth as they are to uh, unintended pregnancies, family planning, contraception, abortion rights. For me, when we start taking things off the table as options for people to do for themselves, it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. Nobody wants to be told that you have to do this thing to your body or you can't do this thing to your body. Giving people as much information and support in making a decision is really where I'm at in my career, and it always will be. In fact, I'm going to double and triple down on that notion. It's my job as a doctor, or I see our legislators' jobs as not telling us what we can and can't do based on their own belief systems. It's their job to give you as much information and support as possible so that you can make an informed decision and stand in your autonomy. So when it comes to abortion, I don't like abortions. Nobody likes abortions. Nobody likes the fact that we have to have so many abortions. There, there's no doubt about it. And there are really, really good reasons for which women feel compelled to have an abortion. So even if I wouldn't do it myself, if I'm an expert in women's health, I better have the skills and the training to counsel and perhaps even help perform abortions. That's just my, my personal view on what my role is in, in our society. But even if I wasn't going to support the, the abortion procedure, it's not my job to tell you whether I'm a legislator, a doctor, mom and dad, a priest, pastor, what you can and can't do. And so in through the lens of sovereignty, through radical responsibility, I think my position will always be that everybody has the right to choose whatever it is that they want to do, barring injuring another person or, um, or damaging their property. Now, then of course the debate comes up, well, aren't you injuring this unborn baby? Possibly yes. Like we don't know really. We don't never ask that question in medicine. Where does life start? That ends up becoming a spiritual question. But it's it still, you know, is is important for us to remember that even if life starts at whatever the heartbeat or whatever, however you want to view it, we as a society are also not very supportive of women who are single mothers. We're not supportive uh, from an economic standpoint of trying to to equalize the playing field economically in our country. So how many women out there have babies that they otherwise maybe were forced to carry to term or who would want to have this baby, except they have no way of paying for you know, the expenses of having a child. Perhaps they can't keep their current job if they have a baby. They won't ever get maternity leave. So we end up with a, a generation of children that doesn't necessarily have a supportive household. Now, again, this isn't me saying what's right and wrong. This is me, me just laying out all of the complexities of this conversation. And when it comes down to it, I've decided as a practitioner that whatever a woman feels is most compelling to them, whatever option is most compelling, given all the information I've provided, it's my job then to support them in that decision. If I'm not comfortable with doing the procedure or giving the medication for the abortion, it's my then job, my duty to refer them to somebody that might be more comfortable with that. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that, Doctor. It's a most appreciated. For Dr. Riley, making the transition from standard medicine to supporting midwives was at first a difficult transition because of the financial security he had in his previous role. But Riley says making the career pivot was one of the best 
professional decisions he's ever made. Well, we've got a lot of problems in the world. We have racism, we have bigotry, we have homophobia, we have transphobia, we have all these phobias, we have all these isms that have emerged. We've got an ecological catastrophe on the horizon. We've got this incredible division in powerful rich countries like in the United States between two equally kind of dumb parties, the blue and the red. Um so so we have all these problems out there you know we've got contaminated polluted water systems we have a nutrient deplete soil throughout most of our agricultural system we've got all these big problems and yet we can't even figure out how to get birth, the birth of a child right we've over mechanized it we've over protocolized it we've taken spirit and soul out of this entire experience and made it into a medical procedure so what keeps me going is is to realize i think very literally that if we want to change the world we have to first figure out how we bring babies into the world yeah absolutely and to that point doctor i know that uh, with your personal experience of witnessing birth and you really have a, a certain way of connecting with women and families and providing uh, them the lifestyle that is uh, more in line for fathers as well and yeah. when they uh, adopt this uh, line of thinking when it comes to giving birth. So tell me about the power of connectivity and the personal satisfaction you get from that as well. Hmm. Yeah, you know, when I when we had our first little baby girl, I was still struggling with managing a busy schedule. I was still working way more than I do now. And I realized now in retrospect, and at the time I was kind of forced to reconcile with the fact that it's not a matter of spending time with a person. Actually, it's it's um connection comes through being present with people. So just filling in an hour of your time with your daughter and, and swinging her on the, on the swings, but you're not really even presently there with her. Little kids know that. So, uh, you know, connection is something that has become sort of, we're, we're sort of craving it now. We're craving authenticity and connection, especially with what happened during these past couple of years where isolation was incentivized over hand-holding and hugging and, and being with people in their, in their comfortable spaces. Now, that's not to say that you know, I, I, it doesn't really matter what my views are on the COVID thing. The, the point being that when we we have become more and more isolated over the past several decades, maybe even century, and that hasn't led to better health outcomes. It hasn't led to better um, health practices. It hasn't led us to live longer or to be happier. In fact, we're more depressed and anxious than ever. So when it comes to even the birth of a baby, the connection between you and your birth attending can actually be a really, really big factor as to how your birth goes. When you're in labor, you've got the, this flood of the love hormone, oxytocin, coursing through your veins. Your baby's being flooded with love, literally. And having that person in the room that you love so dearly and that looks into your eyes and is present with you can help you make comfortable and safe. And when you're feeling comfortable and safe in pregnancy, especially as you're having your baby, oxytocin is is really doing its thing it's connecting you to your baby it's connecting you to your partner it's also helping to create these surges these contractions in the uterus to bring the baby out into the world earth side but if i scare you if i if i talk to you in a certain way if i'm conf, conf, confrontational with you 
I will activate your catecholamines. This sort of flight, fight, freeze response happens. And that actually counterbalances the love hormone. So if that happens in childbirth, why wouldn't fear and and um, stress and everything, why wouldn't it counterbalance love outside of pregnancy as well? So deep human connection is critical to this whole process. And as long as we see birth in the conventional model as a medical procedure, we try to act like we can mimic nature in a really beautiful way in the hospital. And we really can't. It starts with how how well supported do you feel? And support is a is a reflection of how connected you are to somebody. You can't support somebody that doesn't feel safe and warm and and sound with you. So I don't know if that answers your question, but but this is this is really where it's at for my counseling with men and women who are going to be starting families, who are already pregnant, who have already had babies. This is really where it's at, becoming connected. And I don't mean even just intimately, although that's a big part of the the equation for married couples, is how do you get that, how do you reconnect now that there's this other person here and the and all of the attention is not on one another, but there's also this beautiful little baby here who's demanding your love and affection as well. It's important to find that balance, isn't it, Doctor? Yeah, it sure is. Absolutely. And a doctor in today's society, I'm fascinated since you're a parent yourself. What do you think it means to be an all-star parent? And what do you think it means to be on the same sort of team as a parent, for lack of a better term? So. What do you think it means to be an all-star parent in today's society? Well, I can speak to that through the lens of a of a dad. Uh, most of our generation, you and I are probably roughly the same age. Um, you know, our our the previous generations never really modeled to us the power of of being vulnerable, accepting responsibility, accepting blame. Um, and being able to hold space for somebody who's having a hard time. What our, gen our, our fathers and grandfathers' generations, what they taught us was that as a man, you're supposed to be the big, strong, tough one. You never show your emotions. Um, you always have the answer to the problem. You're capable. You're strong. You can lift heavy things. And you know what our society views that as now is toxic masculinity. But you can still be those things as long as you're able to really connect with somebody and you can't connect with somebody without being a little bit vulnerable and admitting sometimes that you made a mistake or admitting, I don't know, or I failed or whatever. When we do those things in a world that's craving authenticity, we get a lot of people, it's a magnetic sort of um, draw that you get because the world is craving authenticity and you're giving them that through the lens of vulnerability. As a parent, as an all-star father, it's also so critical that we teach our kids that we can be vulnerable, that we that we show them affection towards their mother, that we show them affection regardless of whether they made the right move or not. It's still correction out of love. And, and, and you know, this a lot of people nowadays are trying the gentle parenting where you never discipline. There's also conscious parenting where you're disciplining the kids. That's more like what we practice. But you're doing it still through the lens of love and you're giving them, you know, these boundaries. You can do whatever you want within these boundaries. But as soon as you step outside of those bounds, then we have to discipline. We have to, you know, show that there's a right and wrong way to do this thing in order to keep you safe or whatever else. So as a parent, the first thing is is practicing presence, which I've already gone into. The second thing, especially if you're a father, is to is to be open to being vulnerable. Your child needs to know that you're a real person. And the third is to love them through 
the highs and lows. And there's going to be a lot of a lot of highs and definitely a lot of lows. That letting a child know that no matter what you love them is critical. Otherwise, they're going to start withholding things from you. And that is very, very hard. That is a very hard practice when you've only had modeled to you this kind of fathering through the lens of toxic masculinity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, doctor, I know when the work that you do, a collaboration and really getting uh, um, to know the people that you work with is important to you when you support midwives and, and people from across the country. So tell me about the power of collaboration in the work that you do. Um, yeah. So what's going on within midwifery in the United States is that many midwives have to play by a certain set of rules that have been commissioned by some board of nursing or board of medicine whereby, hey, here are the parameters as to how you can practice. We're giving you permission to practice medicine as long as you do it in this way. Well, oftentimes for midwives, especially direct entry midwives, there's a variety of types, but some midwives are called certified nurse midwives. All of the rest are generally considered direct entry. Direct entry midwives generally are working out of the hospital. They're usually working and learning their skills through an apprenticeship model. And the state has deemed them unfit to practice unless they have a supervising doctor that is overseeing their their work. Well, that would that would limit the number of midwives by about 80% in our country um, who are attending home births. So in order to support home birth, I support midwives by by serving as their collaborative physician. There's an agreement. It's a private contract between them and I that I'm going to provide them as much education and counseling as I can in order for them to optimize the care for their clients. And I say client because you're not sick when you get pregnant. You're just a person looking for a service. Um, and so without collaborative physicians, and many midwives find nothing but uh, resistance within their local hospital and clinics, uh, hospital systems and clinics, because OBGYNs notoriously don't like working with midwives. They don't see them as good enough. They don't see them as smart enough. But I'll tell you, midwives are probably better at attending most births than OBGYNs, unless there's a catastrophe and you need a surgical uh, suite, like an operating room. Then, of course, an OBGYN is great, but most women don't need that. And so, I wanted to honor home birth by upholding traditional midwifery. And the best the way that I could do that was to was to really be to get out of the way and to and to serve midwives in order to honor their practice so that they can continue doing what they're doing. And like I said, if you live in, let's say, whatever, you know, town in Texas, there's not an OBGYN in a hundred miles that will support you, let alone in in nearby states, let alone across the United States. So I've gotten licensed in about 25 states, and I support midwives in that capacity. And it, it's really just a, a remote thing. We review charts. They give me calls when they have questions. I help them understand what the labs show. I give them maybe even recommendations. I sometimes call in orders. It's a really, it's a really uh, very rewarding, given that I learned quite a bit from midwives in my training. So it's a little bit of uh, giving back to them as well. And, and I imagine that it allows you to have a more authentic uh, relationship with the people that you work with. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor, I'm curious to ask you, why do you think more people should be advocates of home births, in your opinion, and the benefits of having a home birth uh, in, in the lens of making it a more intimate and Rewarding experience, like we've 
already talked about this afternoon. Well, the philosophy of maternity care in the hospital system is that there's a disaster coming at any moment. We want to avert that disaster. The philosophy of home birth is it's unlikely that that bad thing is going to happen. If it does happen, we can jump in and, and intervene. But in general, we're going to get out of the way of the natural physiologic birth process or even the sacred unfolding that is childbirth. So you have two very, very different schools of thought there as to what needs to happen in pregnancy in order to support a person getting through. When a person you know, is considering, do I go to the hospital or do I go at home or whatever, most people think, but what if that, that scary thing happens? And as I mentioned, your midwife is going to know when to transfer. Most midwives are very, very good at saying, hey, listen, I know that you trust me. I'm going to tell you right now, if it was me, I would be going to the hospital. I'm really worried about your baby. And most of them have a great relationship with their with the birthing couple, and they just go to the hospital and they get that support. If you're in the hospital, though, you're going to have to be pushing back on virtually every intervention under the sun. And a lot of those interventions end up leading to catastrophes that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So while we do have the tools to save you, we also are more likely to use those tools to, quote, save you because they're right across the hall. Midwives have gotten very, very creative over the years with helping clients stay out of the hospital because it's possible that women um, seeking midwifery care at home also had a bad hospital experience, perhaps a very traumatizing hospital experience, and they're just desperate to not have that happen again. When you consider the number of, of unnecessary C-sections, right now about one-third of babies are born by C-section. Many of those are unnecessary. The World Health Organization agrees. Even the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the oversight guidelines creating body in the United States, even they agree that we have too high of a C-section rate. But when you're in a hospital and somebody knows how to do a C-section very quickly, as soon as they start getting worried, heaven forbid that baby dies, you're going to be rushed to the operating room and opened up with a scalpel. Sometimes it's necessary, but oftentimes that's actually not. That's actually not the right thing to do. We don't have a lot of very well-validated monitoring systems for how babies are doing inside the uterus. That's just fact. It's not an opinion. It's just fact. So, you know, in the hospital, it's fear-based. In the in the home, it's trust-based kind of arrangement, uh, philosophy around birth. Yeah, and uh, Doctor, I know part of your mission is also to to empower women to have babies on their own terms. So what do you, what, what, how, how do you define that? And why is that so important to you? Well, let's say that, uh, um, let's say that you were looking to buy a house somewhere and, you know, you, you go on the tour with the realtor and you're really desperate to buy a house, but something about this house just doesn't feel right. It's like, oh, I don't really like the kitchen. Maybe I could get used to the kitchen. I don't know. That bathroom needs a lot of work. I just don't like how the how the rooms are arranged. It's not an open floor plan. It's not really what I was looking for, but we do need to buy a house. And then the realtor is like, okay, are you ready to buy your house? And despite you feeling not so great about the decision, something about the realtor charms you into thinking, uh, you're afraid to say no. And so you're just like, ah, screw it. And you just put your name down. You've now signed a mortgage for a $400,000 house that you actually don't feel good about. It wasn't a hell yes on the inside. That plays out in, in kind of nefarious ways. You start resenting your partner for for having you know talked you into it. You start kind of resenting the realtor. You don't want them back to sell your house because you just didn't like the way that it made you feel. 
believe it or not, that's actually what happens in every aspect of our life, including childbirth. So sometimes bad things happen in childbirth. Sometimes babies die. That actually is a thing. Like we are mortal people. We can't reduce the likelihood down to zero, but fortunately it's very, very low in the United States. But if something bad were to happen to your baby and it was the it was the result of you making a decision that did not feel good on the inside, you were just going along with what people were suggesting, that's going to feel a lot worse than making a decision that actually does feel good for you and the bad outcome still happening. In other words, when you make a decision that is in alignment with your your sort of soul's sort of messaging to you, like it feels real in alignment with who you are, a part of owning your your your, your autonomy through radical responsibility is I'm going to make this decision for me, and a big part of that is owning the outcome of that decision. When people make decisions that are in alignment with their hell yes on the inside, they have better experience experiences afterwards, but we have never really taken into account the experience of a person who goes through childbirth. We don't really quantify that because it's hard to quantify how much you love your baby or how much joy you experience or how much trauma you experienced in your childbirth you know, process. So um, autonomy is, uh, is only possible if you're willing to reclaim your power, make decisions on your own behalf and on behalf of your baby. And then live whatever the with whatever the outcomes of those decisions are. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, doctor, I also know that you you spend a, a a large amount of time helping fathers get more intimate with the process of pregnancy and really taking an active role. And I, I'm curious sure. to ask you about that process and the pride that you. Uh, take and helping uh, fathers in particular get excited about parenting and the whole uh, process of childbirth as well. Yeah, so uh, a lot of men for, for decades now have felt like they don't have much of a role. You kind of just wait there and you play on your phone and then a baby comes out and you take all the pictures and send them to grandma and all of that. There's actually a great opportunity for men to lean into childbirth, to really be present with childbirth, because it's it's probably the closest you can get to God being, you know, right there and being very present when a baby is born. The only maybe closer connection to the divine um, could be uh, if you're attending to somebody who's dying. So it's there's an opportunity there for you as a man to really embody what masculinity is, which is not coming to the plate to fix a problem. It's really coming to the plate to hold space and to allow this process to unfold without you feeling compelled to intervene in some way. So, so really think about that. I mean, that's a really, really hard thing for us. You're watching somebody you love who's in pain, but it's functional. They're giving birth. Of course they're in pain. This is a, a, a an incredible transformation that's happening, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. This is a really important thing. And all of that pain is going to result in you meeting your, your baby girl or baby boy. So the, the divine masculine, I talk about sacred polarities a lot, the divine masculine versus the divine feminine. The divine feminine is the tempest whirling around in the desert. And the divine masculine is the mountain that pr provides the, the container for that. Without the mountain, you don't get streams. The stream is the feminine. The mountain is the masculine. And the feminine may even erode the sides of the mountain a little bit. 
But at the end of the day, it's not the mountain's job to tell the, the, the river which way to go. The mountain is just holding space for the, for the feminine. So this is really, I, mean, I could go on and on about the role of a man in, in, in pregnancy and childbirth, but that's, that's it in a nutshell. That's really quite a bit of, of the counseling that I do. And in my new course, The Born Free Method, there's a whole unit for the dads where I interview really strong men who have been through birth and who really have owned, owned it and taken oppor- taking the opportunity to really connect with the process. And it's important for men to be vulnerable throughout this process, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, doctor, I, I, I'm curious, in the few minutes I have left with you today, I'm curious to ask you about a, a sort of a checklist that people should go through when considering whether or not to have a home birth versus going to a hospital setting. So I'm curious if there's uh, certain uh, things that people should Consider what making such an important decision. Man, you you are a good interviewer. That's a great question. Um, if it was, you know, if it was as ma- as easy as making a, a checklist like a grocery list, and you just go get these things, that would be really easy. I want to go a little further than that because when we talk about autonomy and hiring a midwife and having a home birth or whatever, as long as you're not getting ready to be off by yourself in the woods and have babies, which by the way is a thing. You can have no no attendant at your birth. It's called a free birth or also known as a wild birth. That's what very, very few women do. But when they do it, they oftentimes are very pleased with it. The home birth is, is really becoming far more popular and women are running into this issue that they develop uh, health-related complications in their pregnancy which then their midwife, based on all the the licensure restrictions that I talked about before, including which you know a part of which is you need a collaborative physician, and they're struggling to find that. Otherwise, they can't practice. Right. Another stipulation often is if your client, your pregnant client, develops X, Y, or Z issue, you are no longer permitted to care for them in their childbirth experience. So what happens is a woman develops a bla- a bad blood pressure issue later in pregnancy. And this midwife with whom they've developed this this amazing relationship is actually forced to say, sorry, at 36 weeks, you're going to have to go and find a doctor in the hospital because my state you know, um, nursing license, my midwifery license won't permit me to care for you. Well, that, that sounds like a really crappy circumstance and it happens far more than, than, than people realize. The, the, that's the bad news. The good news is most of the pregnancy-related complications that lead to C-section, that lead to induction, that lead to you know babies not growing well or placentas pooping out early in, in, in labor are actually quite preventable. So the checklist I have for anybody considering home birth is you got to dial in your six foundational principles of health, which are diet, movement, hydration, sleep, breathing, and mindset. And with mindset comes your stress management. That's sort of your emotional boundaries. So these are some really important principles that everybody who's considering having a baby, whether you're going to have a hospital birth or a home birth, if you want to have any say over what happens to you and your body and feel really good about it, feel like, hey, that's not even a risky decision to make, caring for yourself, treating your body and your baby like a temple starts even before conception. Get your health dialed in, get your organs working well, get your bones moving well, hydrating well, sleeping well, get your adrenals back in order. When you get all of those things working, you know, on a hundred percent, you know, all cylinders go, that's when you can really start to lean into what birth do you imagine 
and you can make that a reality, whether it's a home birth, a free birth, or a hospital birth. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that uh, tremendous advice, Dr. No. Uh, I wanted to end our conversation by asking you a little about your, uh, asking you a little bit about yourself, Doctor, and why your why in life has changed over the the years, or how it has evolved, and how you define your passion and purpose in life today. I am most passionate about helping people um, do what feels right to them on the inside. You know, eating the way that I recommend people eat or giving birth at home like I like I did with my wife. Um, that may not be for everybody. But I think that as we see more and more statutes, limitations, um, people in various capital cities and including our very own D.C. making decisions on behalf of the entire population, people are starting to feel a little cantankerous about that. And I understand why. It's because from a very early age, we've been told you know, we've been conditioned to believe that we don't have any power in this world. But you have an immense power. You have an immense beauty inside of you, Kevin, in that you can make decisions that feel right to you. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of mechanisms in place, you know, systemically for us to be honored for making decisions that just feel right to us. And so my legacy, my uh, really what I'm hoping to put out into the world, the way that I show up every single day is that I'm going to do what's right for me. And I'm going to do my best to honor everybody else doing what feels right to them. And I'm going to be okay with their decision, regardless of their race, their creed, the, you know, whatever, however they experience the world. I don't know their full story, but I trust that they're a, an adult with the ability to decide what's best for them. And I can do my best through a doctor's lens to provide them with my insights, my experiences, the data, so that they can make a decision for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, Doctor, you just eloquently gave me your sort of uh, professional legacy, but from a personal standpoint, I wonder how you want your personal legacy to also be defined. I think that if, uh, you know, we always see our legacies through the eyes of our kids. I would feel very proud if if my kids saw me as somebody who stood up to what I felt was true based on my direct experience with the world. I've had a wide variety of experience, traveled the world. I've gone through some of the hardest education. I've seen lots of death. I've seen lots of birth. Um, I have lived a very full life, even at my age. I'm, I'm almost 40. And I would love for my kids to be able to look at me, and know my story, and know that their father always did what what he felt was was right as opposed to caving into pressures from whoever these you know the power structures to do something that didn't feel like it was the right thing to do you know when we look back to like the civil rights movements for example i i remember you know those horrible videos of like a black man walking down the street and a group of white guys just chasing them and throwing rocks and kicking them from behind and you know I, i'm sure that we can all guess what type of language they were using I would love to have, um, you know, imagined myself as being the guy in that crowd that was trying to stop them, in order to to get them to realize just how like in, incredulous it was that they were treating another person like that. So, 
every single day, every interaction I have with people, I try to show up with love and light as opposed to fear and judgment. And if, if, if my little girls can say my dad stood for that, then I think that that would be a really great legacy, even if I only change two people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, doctor, tell me if people want to get connected with you and the good work that you do, what's the best way they can do that? Just head to BelovedHolistics.com. Um, or, uh, I have a new course that's coming out, which can be found at BornFreeMethod.com. And that's all for pregnancy and postpartum support. I do a lot of holistic women's uh, health work, gynecology, pregnancy and postpartum support at BelovedHolistics.com. And of course, I have a podcast as well. It's called The Holistic OBGYN. So you guys can find me and reach out. And and Kevin, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing some time with me today. Absolutely, Doctor. I really want to thank you for uh, open, opening up on a, a very important topic and a timely topic in uh, today's society. Your work in the space of bringing life into the world is most appreciated, Doctor. And I want to uh, thank you for sharing this space of conversation with me and engaging in conversation with me this afternoon. It's most appreciated. Likewise, Kevin. Thank you. I hope you have a great day.